0: But we're going to dive right in today and go to James chapter 4, please. I have been studying the book of James for the last year or so uh, with the saints at Tenafly. And of late, I have been uh, meditating and, and rehearsing over and over again in my mind uh, verses from James chapter 4. And I'd like to share with you some things the Lord has been trying to teach me um, as a result of this, for context's sake, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 10, but we're going to be focusing primarily uh, on verse uh, 6 and 7 and, num- and verse 10. But we're going to read the first 10 verses of chapter 4 for the sake of context. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever thinks, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously guards. He jealousy desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you this morning that we can come together with your word open before us, and we confess, Father, our utter inability to comprehend and apply your word in our own strength. As our Savior has said, without me, you can do nothing. And so, Lord, we don't want nothing to happen this morning, but rather we would want something to happen in our lives as we are here listening to your word. We would invite your spirit and ask humbly, Lord, for you to take the words that are on the page and inscribe them in our hearts and in our minds that we might be so motivated and transformed by the word preached that our lives might be affected this afternoon and this week. Lord, we confess our, 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 our spiritual adultery that we so often are wanting to be friends with the world, that we don't even realize that that's what's motivating us. We, we confess, Lord, that we're often far from you in our thoughts and that we are far from you in our behavior, but you have a greater grace for us. And so we thank you for that. We would ask, oh God, that your spirit might teach us, guide and direct us, Lord, and empower us that we might live for you. Thank you for your son, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection and the life that he gives us, that we have the power to know you and the ability to know you and, and that you've opened up heaven's door for us. We thank you for him for his blood shed, and we thank you that it purchases our, our pardon, and we just ask now that you might uh, guide and direct us as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Uh, in the uh, King James Version and the New King James Version, verse 6 uh, says he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Um, I like the way the New American Standard translates that verse. It says he gives a greater grace. He gives a greater grace. We often sing marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, infinite grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Sin and despair, like sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater. Yes, grace untold points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Marvelous grace, infinite grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Marvelous grace, infinite grace. Grace that is greater than all our sin. God has a greater grace. You know, as you go through the book of James, we find that James deals with a lot of different issues and it talks about a lot of different subjects that are of of importance to us as Christians. And sometimes when people read the book of James, they think that James is just a collection of wise sayings, sort of like Proverbs. You're just a collection of of random pearls strung together. But that kind of misunderstands James' point. And it's not just a collection of wise sayings, even though it is sort of the Proverbs of the New Testament. It's rather knit together by a common theme, and that is that the believer live well under trial that whatever is going on in their life that they learn how to live well and behave well no matter what they're going through it sort of opens up with that in chapter 1 kind of concludes with that in chapter 5 and to summarize the 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 what James thinks of as being the way to live well he says be swift to hear slow to speak and slow to wrath and 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 th- that is almost like a whole Uh, outline of the entire book it's sort of the the way you could structure the high be swift to hear slow to speak and slow to wrath this idea of listening to the voice of God and 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 not criticizing God not condemning God not ascribing to God you're using your tongue properly and then and then um, being uh, slow to wrath slow to get angry and you see this in in different ways expressed in the book But as you go through the book, he talks about all of the different challenges that we face, and he starts the book by saying uh, that, you know, count it all joy, my brethren, when you fall into various trials and temptations. And of course, when we first read that book, and we start reading that verse, we start to think to ourselves, uh, what is he talking about? And we think about our lives, and we think about the challenge of living, and we think about just ordinary life. We think about what it's like to just live life. And you go through all these transitions in life. When you're a child, you have all these challenges that you deal with. And then as you enter your adolescence, there are all kinds of struggles that you're confronted with. Identity issues, acceptance issues, where you fit into the world, where you fit in with your family, the community. All these things are kind of like coming at you from a lot of different directions. And there's just all kinds of challenges that life throws at us that are just part of living in this world. But the word says he gives a greater grace. And then there's the suffering that we go through. The kind of things that are are just hard. Whether it be just an inconvenience like being stuck in traffic and missing an appointment. Or getting uh, a diagnosis from the doctor that is not what you wanted to hear. And what you thought might have been just a routine physical exam. Has now turned into something far more darker and dangerous. And you're confronted with this suffering. But the Word says He gives a greater grace. And there are all kinds of doubts and struggles that we go through that are are mental torments or doubts about our salvation or doubts about where we stand with God or doubts about our relationship with Him. And the Word says He gives a greater grace. And you see, as you go through life, there's all kinds of things that happen to us as believers that are just common with everybody else. In other words, the Bible says that the rain falls on the just and on the unjust. And of course, we're kind of like saying, Lord, enough with the rain already. But you see, in in ancient Israel, that was a positive thing. That was a blessing. That was saying that when the rain falls, that's a good thing. That the rain falls, God's blessing falls on the just and the unjust. But we also understand that there's a negative connotation to that. The idea that, that sometimes rain like destruction falls in our lives and floods and disasters affect us as they do our ungodly neighbors. And as Christians we're not exempt from those things. We're not exempt from the bad diagnosis. We're not exempt from the unemployment line. We're not exempt from uh, the the challenges of unruly or disobedient or rebellious children. We're not exempt from those things. The same afflictions that afflict every man, the Bible says afflict us, there's no trial or temptation taken to us except such as is common to man. We go through the same things. But here's the thing, as Christians we go through different things that non-believers don't go through. That there are things that we experience that, are, that, that the ungodly and the unbelieving around us do not experience. They have nothing about the ostracism of being a Christian. They don't know what it's like to have rejection based necessarily on what they believe. And the Bible says that those who would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And so there's a sort of special trial and tribulation that Christians go through that just Christians go through. So this idea that if you're a Christian, life gets better and that you'll have less problems. Well, there's a truth to that on some level, but it's also just as true to say that, look, if you believe in Jesus and you're walking with him, you're going to have more trouble in your life because the world and the devil and the flesh are going to be arrayed against you and they're going to work against you and they're going to torment you and harass you and there's going to be trouble in your life that's unique to being a Christian but he gives a greater grace and when we think about this idea of God's greater grace we think about what's going on in this book and and what we see here is that James is bringing this this book to a climax he's been dealing with a lot of different subjects in the book but it kinda reaches this pinnacle point in James chapter four where he just indicts the believers and he says look what is the source of your problems what is the source of your fighting and your arguing and your conflicts? Is it not the fact that you're spiritually committing adultery? That you want to be friends with the world. You want you have the cake and eat it too. You want to be known as a Christian, but you want acceptance from those who are not Christians. You want to be a follower of Jesus, but you don't want to have to pay the price. And as a result of that, you are friends with the world, and it's produced all kinds of chaos in your life, all kinds of chaos in your homes, all kinds of chaos in your church. And and this is the reason why. And what's striking about that is that James brings the message home at this point, and then he says this: He says, Do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. And that's a strange verse to translate. But if I can give you the sense of it, and what James, I think, is trying to say here, is look, do you think God doesn't, is just speaking for no reason? He wants relationship with you. He desires for you to walk with Him. He jealously yearns for you to be faithful in your walk with Christ. He gives a greater grace. And you see, when we think about what that means is that God's grace, as it's given to us in the person of Jesus Christ, is greater than the challenges of our life. It is greater than our suffering. It is greater than our trials. It is greater than our doubts, our frustrations, our fears, and our failures. His grace is greater than my sin. It is greater than my shame. It is greater than my past. It's greater than my present. It is greater than my future. He gives a greater grace. The problem with us is that we have to be in the right place and in the right state of mind to receive that grace. Because he goes on to say right after that, Therefore, it says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. The therefore is directly related to the greater grace. He's saying, look, there is this greater grace that is ours in Christ Jesus, but that grace is for those who know their place, who know their need, who understand their bankruptcy, who accept their brokenness, who embrace their weakness and their infirmity because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. As one author writes, we get no deeper into Christ than we allow him to get into us. This idea of our resistance and our independence and our autonomy and that which we try to amass to ourselves and we try to hold on to ourselves and the world we try to create for ourselves and the the way we want to impose our will on the world around us, all of this places us in opposition to God. And puts God in opposition to us. And so often what God will do as resistance to us. Is really just allow us to experience the consequences of our rebellion and our autonomy. That we try to go off and do things on our own in our own strength. And we find ourselves frustrated. We find ourselves failing. And as a result of that we, we are broken by the circumstances that we try to impose our will upon. And it causes us, or at least it intends, is the intention, is to turn our eyes back toward Him. As D.L. Moody once wrote, let God have your life. He can do more with it than you can. And that's really why verse 7 is so important in our understanding of this idea of accepting this grace and receiving this grace. Because there's no way for me to experience that grace then if I don't submit. God, Submit, therefore, to God. So look how it goes. He gives greater grace, therefore, God gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. In other words, if you want to be humble, to receive the greater grace, the way to do that is to submit to God. As Richard Baxter wrote, Lord, what you will, where you will, and when you will it. The mindset that is also expressed in verse 10 of humbling ourselves in the presence of the Lord. Thomas Manton explains that submission means placing ourselves under God, and so it denotes the whole duty of an inferior state. The word here that is used is is not a kind of doormat concept. It's not this kind of idea of a doormat, although, honestly speaking, if God told us to be doormats, we should be doormats. But that's not what, what he's saying here. What he's saying here is a word that's used in a military ca- capacity. In other words, when a general would order his troops and arrange them for battle, that's what the word submit isn't talking about. You align yourself with the command of the superior. The commander says, line up here, we line up here. The general says, this is the battle arrangement. This is how the forces are going to be arrayed in battle. This is how they, they submit to that arrangement. There must be, he goes on to write, a subjection to God's will. The whole man to the law of God. To submit to God is to give ourselves up to be governed by his will and pleasure. Our thoughts, our counsels, our affections, our actions must be guided according to the strict rules of the word. Usually the work of conversion stops here. That's an interesting thought, right? Why? Because we are loath to resign ourselves to God's will. In other words, we we hear the gospel, we get saved, we're thankful that we've been born again, and then we start hearing about God's will for our life. And we're like, oh, wait a second. (laughs) This is more than I bargained for. And you see, he goes on to write, some of God's commands, such as those that are inward, are contrary to our affections. And others, such as those which enforce external duties, are contrary to our interests. So that when I come into my relationship with Christ, I have have desires and dreams and wants and things that I have in my head that I want to do. And God says, wait a second now. You know, you need to renew your mind. You need to seek first the kingdom of God. You need to understand that the things that you love, you probably shouldn't love so much. And we resist that. But if we do, we're proud. Then there are things that we don't really want to do. Like God tells us that we should love our neighbor as ourselves. And we resist that. God says to be anxious for nothing. But in everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. And we resist that. We, we, we hear in the word, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. But we resist that. In other words, there are external and internal things that we, we resist. Or our will against His will. And yet here James is saying, look, there's this greater grace that is ours when we submit to God. And submission means embracing His will for our life. In other words, it's basically accepting the fact that that God is God, that He is sovereign, that there is a God and I'm not Him. James is commanding us, and the Word has all of these different nuances in it, to align ourselves under the authority of God, to assume a proper position before Him, to get in line with and under God's authority, to subject ourselves to Him so that we might obey Him, to put ourselves under God's orders and under his chain of command. Now practically speaking how do we do this? Like it's it's theoretical and how and when do we do this? How do how does this work itself out in our lives? Well, I would suggest to you that based on James and what Jesus taught and just our life experience that there are two particular ways that this plays itself out in our life. And the first one is in our circumstances. James started the book by saying, count it all joy when you fall into various trials and temptations. Now, you and me, if we're honest with each other, okay you're, you're driving down the road and you're just doing your thing and you see the red and blue flashing lights behind you. And you're hoping that he passes you. You slow down and he slows down. And then you hear, pull over to the side of the road. Mm-hmm. Your first response is, oh, praise the Lord, I'm getting a ticket. That's, that's your response, right? That's your natural response, right? If you said that, I think maybe you're crazy. But that's what James says. James has counted all joy whenever you fall into various times of trials. You see, that's not our natural response. And because it's not our natural response, guess what we need? Greater grace. That's not my natural response. My natural response is to get mad at myself, to get mad at the cop, to get mad at God. You know, that's my natural response. That's why we need a greater grace. You see, the circumstances of our lives... There is a plan in place. God is at work in our life, constantly unfolding his will. He is God. There are lots of things that happen that are mysteries to us. I remember a number of years ago we talked about Ecclesiastes and the idea of understanding Ecclesiastes. Not that everything is vain, but that everything is an enigma that life is an enigma that when you look at life sometimes you just don't understand it it just is too hard to comprehend instead of saying vanity vanity all is vanity it's riddle riddle everything's a riddle and that's true from our perspective that there is a sense in which when we look at our lives there is no way for us to understand why God allows things to happen in the way they do. We're very thankful when things go the way we want them to. We're very thankful that when God answers a prayer in the affirmative, that suddenly we're so happy that His will was our will. But when that doesn't happen, suddenly now we're confronted with a reality that jars us and challenges our faith, and it's at that moment we have to ask ourselves, is God God? That's why James says, submit therefore to God. Submit to him in our circumstances. Some of you probably heard about the terrible bus accident that happened up our way on Route 80 with the school bus. Paramus is very close to Tenafly. It's only a few towns away. Uh, Teachers in our school, new teachers in their school. Kids had gone to camp together uh, from that school district. It's not that distant. And, And you think about the tragedy of that accident. You think about the... The, just the, the horrific experience that those children and teachers went through. And you can start to ask yourself all kinds of questions about that situation. Like, you know, why? But the reality is, is that, that if we're honest as Christians, we have, to, we have to avoid the pat answers. We have to avoid trying to defend God and come up with explanations that might make sense. Because if we're honest, the reality is we have no idea why God allowed it to happen that way. Because we all understand that had the bus waited like t- two seconds later, they would have cleared. And we've seen, I've seen plenty of stupid drivers on Route 80, and nothing ever happens to them. I've seen them go across four lanes and hit that median and make the U-turn. I That guy's a real jerk. Well, no, God was merciful to that jerk. But I can't explain why in this particular instant it happened the way it happened. Submit therefore to God. It's not for me to to try to ascertain the grand scheme of things. And I think as Christians, we've often done great harm to people in suffering when we've tried to come up with some explanation, or we've thrown verses at them as a way to try to assuage our guilt and our survivor guilt, as it were, and try to make them stop grieving. You see, because the Bible says, weep with those who weep. It doesn't say preach to those who weep. And the reality is, is that submitting therefore to God is letting God be God in my circumstances. Whether those are good things or bad things or just whether it's just life. And, and in, the, in the commands, the second area is in the commands where we're supposed to be doers of the word and not hearers only, James says. We're supposed to take seriously what God says in his word. But I think so often we satisfy ourselves with knowing what the Bible says but not doing what the Bible says. That is why James would say here, do you think the scripture speaks to no purpose? It's a rhetorical question. Do you think that God is just saying things for the sake of saying things? And so that when he talks about husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church, He's not just saying a nice thing you say at a wedding. He's saying something that's supposed to mark our lives. When Jesus says, by this they will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another, he's not just saying a nice sentiment, that there's got to be teeth to this. And so submitting, therefore, to God is, is looking at my circumstances and trying to see it through God's lens and accepting the fact that there are times I will not understand what God is doing, but he is God, and he's got the authority and the right, and, the, and, and it's his job. And that when he speaks, it's for a purpose. That's hard. That's hard, because we have affections and we love things more than we should. And when God takes them away from us, we cry and we become petulant children. And we, we, you know, we, and some of us will just say, well, God, I'm not talking to you anymore. Well, he gives grace to the humble. And if there were, if there were seven words in the English language that could capture this sentiment seven words that that you could kind of have as your go-to prayers in these situations, it would be these seven words. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Why? Because when I'm praying your kingdom come, I'm praying about his kingdom, not mine. I'm praying about his agenda, not mine. I'm praying about his will and not mine. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. It is the most profound prayer. That is why Jesus in the garden is is our role model in that moment. He is our example in the garden. When he is there facing the greatest suffering any human being could ever possibly imagine. When he is about to become the sin bearer and the curse is going to be placed upon him for our sin. He says, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He becomes our role model at that moment in time of what every one of us has to face. He's not our role model on the cross because we cannot take away our sin. We, cannot, we can't do that. He's a singular sacrifice. That, his act on the cross is not our example there. Not in, the, not in that act that he does as a sacrifice for our sins, but in the garden when he prays. Not my will, but your will be done. That's where he is our role model. And as we live our lives now, if we're called upon to lay down our lives, it's not because we're trying to expiate our sins or pay for, but rather we're just following his will for our life because he gives a greater grace. Your will be done. We pray that when we don't know what to pray. We pray that when anxiety threatens to overwhelm us, we pray that when we're stuck in life's waiting room, we pray that as an act of daily submission, your kingdom come, your will be done. Yesterday I was meditating on Psalm 61 and I thought this is a good way to conclude this In Psalm 61, we read, Hear my cry, O God, give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And here is the cry of someone who is facing circumstances and pressures and trials and life and whatever it was. He says, Hear me, O God. Hear my cry. Give heed to my prayer. It's like, God, do I have your attention? And then he says this, from the end of the earth I will cry to you. You know, that's an interesting expression. I don't think that the author thought the earth was flat and that he was going to go to the, the end of the earth and fall off. I don't think that's what he meant. We have expressions like this in English. Like, I'm at the end of my rope. I'm at the end of the line. In other words, the end of the earth means I've come to the end. There's, no, there's nowhere else I can go. I'm standing at a precipice and there's a raging flood around me and there is nowhere I can turn. From the end of the earth, I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, what does he say? Lead me. Lead me. You see, it's an act of submission. Because you have to be humble to be led. You have to be willing to be led. You have to be open to be led. Lead me to the rock. You see, the rock is a metaphor for Christ. Was in the Old Testament foreshadowed, and it's explicit in the New Testament. He is the rock. So He's not leading me to a place, He's leading me to a person. He's leading me to a person. Leading me to Christ. Lead me to the rock. Now, watch this that is higher. It's higher than the floods that threaten me. It's higher than the circumstances around me. It's higher than my faults and my failures and my fears. It's higher. Lead me to the rock that is higher ultimately than I. I recognize where I am. I know who I am. I need to be led to the rock that is higher than I. He giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added afflictions, he addeth his mercy. To multiply trials is multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed, ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our father's full giving has only begun. Fear not that your need shall exceed his provision. Our God ever yearns his resources to share. Lean hard on the arm everlasting availing. Both you and your load the Father will bear. His love has no limits. His grace has no measure. His power no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we thank you this morning for this opportunity that we've had to meditate in this passage in James, Lord, and we are so thankful. I am so thankful you give greater grace, greater than my pride, greater than my failings, greater than my sin, greater than my circumstances. I thank you, God, for that greater grace. It's abundant grace. It's more grace than we could ever need. It is just an infinite grace. We thank you for this time together. We ask you now to bless us as Jorge shares his experiences. I pray that it would be an encouragement to the saints here to pray for missions, to be excited about your work in Puerto Rico and other parts of the world and that we might listen to you and that we might obey you, Lord, even as we're so prone to wander, Lord, so prone to leave the God we love. We pray that you might seal us, draw us after yourself, And bring home to us the truth of these words, even as if they are your words, that we'd heed them. In Jesus' name, amen.